Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis and chapter number 49. Genesis chapter 49 this evening. For the past uh, three weeks, we have preached out of the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis each Sunday night as we have examined the blessings that Jacob bestowed upon his sons on his deathbed. Uh, We find as we study this portion of Scripture that there is a personal application of these things. In other words, Jacob was saying something about his boys. And I don't guess anyone knows us quite like our parents know us. And he had watched these boys. He had seen them grow. He had seen their weaknesses and their strengths. And he makes some comments, some statements, and some prophecies concerning their personal history and their personal future. There is a personal application of these things, but there is a practical application of these things. Really, as we've uh, preached on the first three, we have leaned heavily on the practical application of them because every portion of the Word of God says something to me today, right here, right now. Every portion of it has something to say. Now, there are some portions that uh, may say more than other portions say, But everywhere in the Word of God, you could literally, and I'm not advising this is how you study your Bible, but you could literally throw the Bible open and place your finger and there'd be some portion, nugget of truth, something that could affect your life if you allow it to. But we find as we have studied these that though there is a personal application in the lives of Jacob's sons and there is a practical application for the life of the believer today, we understand that there is also a prophetic application of these verses to the history, to the future, to the well-being of the Jewish nation. Jacob uses this phrase in verse number 1. He says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That terminology, the last days, and of course none of the Word of God is on accident, but that is a very jam-packed phrase with connotations. You'll find it all through the Word of God, conveying in a particular way, the day of the Lord, or we might say this, the advent, the second advent of the Lord's coming, the day when Christ comes in power and in glory and the events that surround His coming. But in the context of the Jewish nation, and at this point in time in their history as a family rather than as a nation at this moment, it conveys everything from this point on down to that point, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in their history or at this time, of course, was not all history, it was all future. And so I want tonight, and you know, as we study these, there's going to be times we're going to lean on the personal application, times we're going to lean on the practical application. But I believe for the first time in this series that tonight we can lean very heavily on the prophetic application of the verses that are in front of us. The first week we studied about the blessing upon Reuben, and we learned something about squandered opportunity. But also, as we examine that, we are keenly aware that that presents to us the history of the nation of Israel from this point on down to King Saul. The time when God had given them so much and still they spurned his authority. We studied next on Simeon. And Simeon and Levi, they are sort of lumped together in the midst of these blessings. And Simeon, we learned about sin's consequences. And we find that because of Simeon's disobedience and because of his iniquity that God said that he would divide and scatter the nation of Israel. Well, first he did just that. He divided them. And if you study the nation of Israel and their history, you know uh, that after Solomon's son Rehoboam ascended the throne, that another man by the name of Jeroboam 
who was an exile, who was a fugitive, so to speak, had been living in Egypt, returns to Israel and leads a, a mutiny of sorts, leads a rebellion against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And the nation is split into two kingdoms. There's the southern kingdom of Judah, comprised of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then there are the northern ten tribes, which constitute the kingdom of Israel. And Simeon's prophecy reflects this, that they would be divided. God also said when He spoke about Simeon and Levi, that He would not only divide them, but He would scatter them. We find this is prophetically uh, taking place in the conquering by, of the northern kingdom Israel by the emperor Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor. And uh, he fell upon the northern ten tribes and he scattered them to the wind. Ever since the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, there has never been a true, real, genuine, and honest reckoning of tribal genealogy for the northern tribes. Uh, if they were to say that they were part of those northern tribes, Zebulun or Naphtali or Issachar or uh, Reuben or, or Simeon or any of those tribes, a Jew couldn't really know that because all of the records, all of the, the pureness of their genealogies was lost during that time and they were scattered. When we studied Levi, we learned a little something about second chances. I'm glad we've got a God of second chances. We may do wrong, but we don't have to stay wrong. And uh, Levi pictures for us how that there was a faithful remnant of Jews that loved God, that trusted God. And because of that, even though God did scatter them, God still used them in a mighty way. Well, if you were to study down through the nation of Israel and their history, and you were to come after the scattering, after the collecting back into the land, after a short period of time of the rebuilding of the temple, in your Bible you'd come to a time that the theologians would call a 400-year silent period in between the Testaments. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a voice comes from the wilderness. A man by the name of John the Baptist comes preaching to make, way, make straight the way of the Lord. And he come prophesying and uh, foretelling the coming of the Messiah of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this point in the national history of the Jews that we come to our next prophecy. And I want to read these verses to you, and then we'll pray and preach a little while on the Savior's ministry. In verse number 8, the Word of God says this, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal under the vine, and his ass's colt under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the time that You've given us. Open our eyes to Your law, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things. And I pray that we'd be drawn closer to You for it. Lord, I love You tonight. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we consider the prophecy given to Judah, the son of Jacob, it's important to note what has happened before in the giving of these prophecies. And you say, why is that, preacher? Well, you have to remember what Jacob had already said to Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. It meant a lot to be the firstborn at that time. 
And if you were firstborn, you got a double portion of the inheritance, meaning that the inheritance uh, was uh, split, and you got a double portion, and then out of that other portion, everybody else's portion was split. It meant a lot financially or fiscally or however you'd like to describe it in prosperity and worldly goods to be the firstborn. But not only did the birthright come with the, to the firstborn, but the blessing typically came upon the firstborn. If you remember when you study the contest between Jacob and Esau, that uh, Jacob, uh, he, he bought away for some porridge. He bought away the birthright from his brother Esau. But the blessing was robbed from Esau. I don't know if you remember, but whenever the birthright, uh, Esau willingly sold the birthright for a bowl of lentils, a bowl of pottage. But then Jacob goes in before, and of course Isaac is old and his eyes are dim and he's not real perceptible to what's going on. And uh, Jacob uh, and his mother Rebekah has him to cover his arms with uh, all kinds of animal skins. And he goes in before his father Isaac, and Isaac bestows upon Jacob the blessing. These are two very distinct and different things. The birthright dealt with temporal earthly matters, but the blessing was a holy spiritual thing. And he tells Jacob that he'd have the uh, preeminence over his brethren. He tells Jacob that God would bless him. And he tells Jacob that from Jacob would come the Messiah and the promised seed would come. And then later on Esau comes in. He says, Father, bless me also. Don't you have a blessing for me? Of course, Jacob does give, or Isaac does give him a blessing, but it pales in comparison to Jacob's blessing. And so Reuben had been robbed of the blessing, or he had forfeited, I should say, the blessing because of his iniquity. Uh, whenever uh, Jacob comes to Reuben and begins to bestow blessings, he, he talks about it and says, Reuben, you are the excellency of my dignity and the excellency of my power. You are my firstborn. You had so much opportunity. But then he says this, Reuben, thou shalt not excel because you're unstable as water. He tells Reuben that the birthright and the blessing will not be his. Well, then that provides a question. Where does the birthright and the blessing go? Well, we have that answered for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Listen to the first two verses. It says this, Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. I don't know if you remember in your history, and we'll come to it eventually, but uh, Joseph did not have the blessing bestowed upon him. Joseph had two sons while he was in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the uh, blessing or the birthright that was upon uh, Joseph was split in between those two sons. And so a double portion was given to Joseph. That double portion should have been Reuben's, but because of Reuben's iniquity, it was taken from him. The Bible says this, And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright, for Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. So maybe we could say this, that if Joseph got Reuben's birthright, then Judah got Reuben's blessing. Whereas it should have been from Reuben that the Messiah would come, it is not from Reuben that the chief ruler appears. And by the way, that use of the word chief ruler in First Chronicles 5, that word is found elsewhere in your Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, it talks about Messiah the Prince. And that's the chief ruler that was to come. And so the blessing was not bestowed upon Reuben. Instead, the birthright went to Joseph, but the blessing, the spiritual blessings, went to Judah. And the Bible says he prevailed above his brethren. Now you say, well, preacher, when are we going to get to preaching? Let me give you one more before we get to preaching. 
You say, preacher, how can I know who this chief ruler is? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, we're told, when the Bible says this, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. David was a son of Judah. Christ was a son of Judah. And so it was from Judah that these blessings came. And it should not surprise us then that as you look at the spectrum of these prophecies concerning Israel's national history, or we might say national prophecy at this particular time that it's being given, that as you trail down through the various sons and you watch their history unfold, that when you come to Judah, we have set before us the earthly ministry of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you study the blessing upon Judah, you find several things that teach us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can I just preface what I'm about to preach by saying this? It's very important that when you look at Old Testament prophecy, you look at it through Old Testament eyes. Now, you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we sort of have things backwards in the way we preach. Can I confess that to you? You see, the Old Testament prophecies were given, the types and the prophecies were given. They were shadows. They were to point in a vague sense forward toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we've sort of turned that thing around. I mean, we took the microscope and turned it around and made it a telescope. And we've been brought into the light of the New Testament. And oftentimes we then turn around and learn something about Jesus Christ by looking at the Old Testament prophecies. But that was not the intent of the Old Testament prophecies to expand and expound on the nature of the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. Rather, to point vaguely to it. And then when Christ came, that was to expound and expand upon the Old Testament prophecies. So when you read them, you have to understand that you're not always getting a strict chronology because that's not the design of it. Uh, You're not always getting a strict, detailed picture of the ministry of the Lord because that wasn't the design of it. The design was to get men to look outward into the future for a coming Messiah, to look forward to the promise and hope of His coming. And as we study this tonight, you're going to find this to be true, that it is not necessarily just a chronological prophecy that walks from the moment of His birth to the moment of His ascension, although those things are dealt with. Nor is it merely a characteristic prophecy, meaning it only deals with certain qualities about Him. But we might say that it is comprehensive in that it looks all over the ministry, both the chronology, the characteristics. It's very collaborative, and it paints a picture for us about the purpose of Christ's coming and the power of Christ's coming and the product of Christ's coming, and it gives us sort of a collaborative view of it. Now, I want you to notice three things or four things or five things. We'll see how long the Lord lets me preach tonight. But I want you to notice a few things with me this evening. In verse number 8, Jacob begins by saying this, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Let me say a word about the exaltation that this implies. Now, Jacob is talking to his son Judah, and there's a very distinct and personal application here. The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 5 that Judah most certainly did prevail above his brethren. Judah was the kingly tribe. Every good king that Israel ever had came out of the tribe of Judah. It was from Judah that David came, who would sit upon the throne. And it's from Judah that Christ would come, who will sit upon the ultimate throne and sits upon a throne even at this moment. But there is a further application of this where it looks forward to the ministry of Christ and gives us three ways in which Christ is and will be 
exalted. Notice the three groups of people that it mentions. Well, the first thing that it says, Judah, and by the way, Judah's name means praise. I believe that's significant. But uh, it says this, uh, Judah, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Let me say that the first people that are exalted by Judah, he's exalted over the Jewish chosen when it speaks about his brethren. It's looking to every other tribe and saying this, Judah, there's going to come a day when they're going to look unto you and they're going to bow before you and they're going to exalt you as who and what you are. Now, we know this did not necessarily happen at the moment of our Lord's earthly ministry, but we do know that all of the things necessary for this to take place happened at the moment of our Lord's earthly ministry. You say, give me an example of that, preacher. Well, don't you remember the prophet Zechariah says this, that when the Lord comes back in power and in glory, that all of the Israels are, uh, all of the Israelites are going to look upon Him, they're going to see Him, and the Bible describes it this way, they're going to look on Him whom they have pierced. And they're going to, in that moment, know that it was their king that they rejected when they said, give us Caesar. We'll not have this man to rule over us. You know, even in this day that we live in, the Jews, by and large, are in darkness. Uh, Paul said that there's a veil over their face in the reading of Moses. Uh, They know all the details and they know all the distinctions, but they just can't see the doctrine of it and they can't see the divineness of what took place. And to this day, most of the time, when you talk to you, you know that the vast majority of Jews are secular. So what do you mean by that? Well, the vast majority of Jews are, are agnostic or atheistic. Uh, we don't think of them as being Jewish because we think of being Jewish as being largely a religious culture. Uh, but to this day, you go out to Hollywood and you'll find a bunch of Rosenbergs and Rosenbaums and uh, a bunch of Jewish last names. You go up to New York and you'll find that high finance is filled with Jewish last names. Everywhere where there's power, everywhere where there's prominence, you'll find that the Jews are present there because God promised that He would bless their earthly and temporal endeavors. But by and large, those very people, I'm talking about the people that pull the strings of this world. I'm talking about the people that turn the cogs of the machine of the economy. The vast majority of them, uh, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in a real personal God that sits on a throne in heaven that sent His Son to die for Him. Uh, by, By and large, they have rejected the coming of the Messiah and they are secular and they reject any semblance or any idea of God's authority upon them. The Jews are still in blindness to this day, but you know that will not always be the case. There's coming a day they will know Him as Messiah. The Bible says that uh, in a day a nation would be born. I know you've heard preachers say that that was in 1948. If you want to believe that, that's fine. But that's not what God's talking about in the book of Zechariah when He says a nation will be born in a day. He's not talking about just uh, the fact that the UN would recognize them as a nation. He's not talking about the fact that they'd get borders. He's not talking about the fact that they would be recognized and given a flag. What He's saying is that spiritually the entire Jewish nation will in a day be born again. You say, how could that happen, preacher? Well, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, period when Christ returns in power and in glory. They're going to look on Him. They're going to see a name written on His thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. There won't be any way to deny that He's the Messiah at that point. Listen, when He sets up an earthly kingdom and He ascends upon the throne and He's ruling in power and in majesty, it's kind of hard to deny that He's King of kings at that point. And in an entire, uh, the entire nation in a day will look unto Him and put their trust in Him. There's coming a day that he'll be exalted over the Jewish chosen. I'd say that not only the Jewish chosen, but we see that he is to be exalted over the Gentile challengers. It says this, that his hand would be in the neck of his enemy. Now, if you wonder what that means, uh, you just turn on one of them animal shows sometimes. or Really, you probably go to Walmart and you might see some of this go on. 
but you turn on those animal shows and you'll see a lot of times uh, that mama lion or that mama tiger, whatever it might be, when they want to get the attention of that young one, when they want to move them, when they want to bend them to their will, they'll reach down with that big old mouth, those big old jaws, they'll grab a hold of what we call the nape of the neck to get a hold of them and to bring them into subjection. Let me tell you something. We live in a world that hates God today. We live in a world that hates God today. Uh, he came unto His own, but His own received Him not. Uh, light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And Christ said to His disciples, He says, The world hateth me. Uh, it, it, the world hateth you, but it's not you that it hates. It hates me within you. The world has rejected Christ as King, but they don't get the last word in this matter. If they got the last word, she'd all be written and done. But they don't get the last word in the matter. Listen, when he comes back in power and in glory, he's not coming as a politician to win votes. He's coming as a king to ascend a throne. He's going to conquer his enemies. The Bible describes the battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation, and really several portions in the Word of God describes it in vivid detail. But the Bible says this, that in that day that the blood will be so high that it will rise to a horse's bridle. The Bible says that, uh, that an entire sixth of the world population will be utterly destroyed in that day. There in the sloping valley of Megiddo below Jezreel. And by the way, that was the same area where Mount Carmel uh, was and is to this day. Napoleon called it the world's greatest natural battlefield. And in that place, the Son of God will step his, step his foot down and in power and in glory defeat the armies of the Antichrist with the power and brightness of his coming. There's coming a day when the Gentiles will acknowledge him. There's coming, and when I say the Gentiles, I don't just mean some Gentiles, I mean all the Gentiles. I mean the entire world will recognize and own him as the King and Lord of glory. But he speaks not only of the Jewish chosen and the Gentile challengers, but he speaks of the justified children that would exalt Judah. He says this of the children of thy father. Now, isn't that interesting? He already says, thy brethren. But then he says, the children of thy father would praise him. I believe that God is being, being very distinct with his language in this sense that when he says thy father and he's speaking to Judah, he's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about a heavenly father. And he's saying this, Judah, there'll come a day when your descendant will be recognized by those that truly know God. Now, this is a present reality in this day. The Bible says this, that if any man deny the Son, he denieth the Father. And so the only way, listen, the only way you can know God is through Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, Christ said. That is the only means, that is the only way to know Him. And so those that are the children of God and the children of a heavenly Father, it is because they have recognized and acknowledged Christ as being the Lord of glory. And this is present in this day, but it was also present in Christ's day in His earthly ministry. We understand that after Calvary, when He ascended uh, up on high, when He uh, led captivity captive, when He presented the blood before the Father, when all these things had taken place, that when He descended back into the earth, He brought gifts unto men. And those gifts were summarized in the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And now there is a personal witness when you're born again. The Old Testament saints did not have this. But you and I, we have this. As born-again believers, the Spirit of God indwells us. And it's by that Spirit that we cry, what? Abba, Father. So we acknowledge the Son, but not only the Son, we acknowledge the Father. Now, it's interesting that before he ever says anything about his earthly ministry, he wants us to understand that he has exalted Judah to a place above his brethren. 
Could it be that we need to understand before we ever really begin to understand anything about the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe it would be proper if we put Him in His right place and gave Him the preeminence. Maybe before we ever really fall in love with the Word of God, we've got to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt Him and put Him in His proper place. God wants us to understand before He ever says anything about the earthly ministry, He wants us to understand that it's in Christ that the preeminence is invested. And it's in Him that the glory is given. He's the brightness and express image of God's glory. His exaltation is spoken of in verse number 8, but there is a characterization that takes place in verse 9. Now, it's important that you understand when you read verse 9 that three separate animals are being spoken of, or we might say this, three separate age groups of a particular animal. Listen how it's described. It says in verse number 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ is described in the character of a lion, that most kingly of beasts and the most powerful. Every once in a while, my little boy, he loves animals like most little boys do. Every once in a while, I'll get on YouTube or something, and I'll look up videos of just lions. Mainly it's because I think it's cute when he roars. Amen, (laughs) And he'll roar. He'll say, lion, and roar, you know. But he likes to listen to that. If you've ever been in the presence of a lion when they've roared, you can literally feel it down in the depths of your bones. The, the power that is within that animal to be able to crush, to kill, is phenomenal. But you know, there's a beautiful majesty to them as well. When you see them, there is a kingly presence and appearance about them. And it should not surprise us that God characterizes the Lord Jesus Christ, with this lion. But he does so by describing three different types of lions. He says, first off, that Judah is a lion's whelp. Now, we don't use that phrase very often nowadays, but basically what he's saying is he is a young lion. Not to the point of being just a little cub, but a lion that has just entered into the place of strength and agility. Oftentimes when you watch these nature shows, and I, it's, I tell you, they're about the only thing fit to watch anymore. And you watch these nature shows and you can see, you know, a lot of times they'll follow a lion as it, as it grows. And, and they'll, they'll show that young lion when it just comes upon the cusp of adulthood. And uh, it's beginning to try out new things and see new things. And uh, you'll see that lion begin to hunt finally. And it's feeling out the strength that is within it. And all things are new, and the energy of them is phenomenal. You've said it before about young people. I've said it too, and I've heard people say it. When you see a young person run around, you say, Boy, I wish I could just bottle that energy. I wish I had an ounce of what they've got. And when it's described in this particular passage concerning a lion, the strength of that lion is first pointed to. Let me say this, that everything Christ did, He did from a place of strength. It may have not been physical strength, but it was always spiritual strength. And even in moments of weakness that displayed His humanity, there was an astonishing spiritual strength that was present and was taking place. Listen, when it describes Him in the garden praying till He sweat as it were drops of blood, that's probably the most tender and fragile and vulnerable moment that we could ever picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in that moment as He battled all the agents of hell, as He drank the dregs of the cup of suffering, as He was made sin for you and I, He did not bow down in the presence of that. He did not give out in the presence of that, but He bore up underneath it and He carried our weight and carried our sin for us. Oh, what strength was present in the Lord Jesus Christ 
in his earthly ministry. It's interesting that it goes on to say this, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. It's describing a lion that has uh, conquered his prey and has been feasting and eating the carcass of that prey. And whenever he's done, he just springs up and runs off in strength and agility. You know, that's what our Lord and Savior did. When he came to Calvary and bore our sin and became our sin for us, the Bible describes his resurrection in these terms that uh, he, that he rose from the dead and that uh, death gave him up because he was not able to be holden of death. Tell you something, it was no great feat for him to die for our sins, nor was it any great feat for him to rise from the grave. He, listen, when he rose up from the grave, I know you've heard people talk about that stone being rolled away uh, so that he could get out. You know that stone didn't have to be rolled away for him to get out. That whole mountain could have listen, been blown to pieces if he had chosen it to do so. The Bible describes it in this way. Christ said this, No man taketh my life from me. He said, I lay it down of myself. This power has been given me from my Father. He said, I lay it down that I might take it up again. He described it in the way that you and I would, like if we were working on a car and we just laid a tool down for a moment and then just picked it up in the next moment. He says, uh, I got up from the prey, ascended from the grave, and ascended upon on high. He's described as a young lion, and strength is denoted. But then I want you to notice, not only is strength denoted when the young lion is spoken of, but we see that security is spoken of when the middle-aged lion is spoken of. It says this, He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? If you've ever seen a lion as it positions itself and gets seated down, it's, it's a majestic thing. Uh, it ain't like a dog. You ever seen a dog sit down? Some of y'all have. You know, they'll just make about six or eight laps and then just plop. But a lion, oftentimes, as they begin to position themselves and sit down, they do it very slow and very deliberately. You know why? Because nobody's going to run them off or chase them off. You know, the same thing is true about our Lord Jesus Christ. When He ascended up on high and He sat down on the right hand of His Father, that was a deliberate, distinct decision of sovereign authority and security. He didn't, listen, He didn't sit down because He had to sit down. He sat down because the work was done. He sat down because the work was finished. When He finished the work of Calvary, it's very interesting. There's a phrase that's used concerning our Lord uh, upon Calvary. It says this, that uh, when He had finished these things, He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. Do you know that that term that's used for the word bowed, it does not have the idea of giving out or giving up, but rather it carries with it the idea of a deliberate, majestic action and consequence. In other words, when He died, listen carefully, when He died, He didn't give out. He allowed death to take him. When all things were finished, he said, it's finished. When all Scripture was fulfilled, he said, all right, the only thing left now is to pass into death. And in a deliberate way, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost and he allowed death to take him. Now, that's security right there. He did it because he wanted to do it, not because anyone made him do it. And then a word about sovereignty is mentioned in the next phrase. It describes the young lion, it describes the middle-aged lion, but then it describes the old lion. And it says this, He couched as a lion and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? It pictures for us a lion in his den that is seated and at rest, and that no one has the ability to unseat. I don't know about you, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't fancy myself a smart person, but I'm smart enough to not go into a lion's den and try to run one out. Amen? 
There's not many animals that will venture into a lion's den and try to run a lion out. They're pretty much the king of the beasts. And once they sit down, they won't stand up except they want to stand up. Nothing can force them to do so. And this describes the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in total and utter sovereignty. The Bible says this in uh, Psalms chapter number 2. I've always thought this was significant. You know, you've read Psalms chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The Bible says this about the Lord. It says, The Lord sitteth in His holy hill. The heathen are raging. The world is boiling and seething like a cauldron. And God is seated upon His throne. None of these things can disrupt His sovereignty. Uh, Listen, there might be things that worry me and you, but there ain't nothing that worries God. There might be things that we can't figure out, but there's nothing that He hasn't already got figured out. And like an old lion, He's seated upon His throne, and no one has the authority or the ability to rouse Him up and to unseat Him from His place of authority. Let me tell you something. There may be things that knock us for a loop, but nothing knocks Him off His throne. There may be things that you face that you did not expect to face, But God is still seated on His throne and He's still in power and in majesty. And we can take comfort in that. We find an exaltation in verse 8 and a characterization in verse number 9. But He turns and begins to deal with the chronology of the Lord's ministry and He speaks about His visitation in verse number 10. Notice what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between His feet until Shiloh come. And unto Him shall the gathering... Of the people be. The first thing that Jacob says about the future of Judah is he says this that the health of the nation would be preserved. He describes it this way the scepter shall not depart from Judah. We think of a scepter as being that which a king holds, and that is true many times. But in this case, it's speaking of an insignia or it's speaking of a, a uh, rod that was used that showed the sovereignty and authority and independence of a throne. Can I give you an example of something you might be familiar with? How many of you have ever seen a family crest before? The scepter would have been very similar to a family crest. And what God is saying in this portion of Scripture is that the nation of Judah would persist and persevere and be preserved until this Messiah would come. We know this is true if you study their history. But what's impressive is it's not just true, it's true particularly and only of them as a nation. The northern ten tribes were totally obliterated. And we find that eventually the southern two tribes did get obliterated as well in 70 A.D. when Titus sacked Jerusalem and they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. But that did not and could not happen until the Messiah would first come. The scepter could not depart from Judah. You know that that was true not only in the time when they occupied the land, but even when they were carried into Babylon, they retained a cultural and ethnic identity. To the degree that after 70 years in exile, they could still tell you who were Levites. They could still tell you who were Jews. They could still tell you who was part of that genealogy. And there were some that intermarried and settled in Babylon, never wanted to go home, but there was enough to go home and uh, repatriate the nation of Israel and build a temple there because the scepter had not departed. God had preserved the health of that nation. It's remarkable. We talked a little bit about it in Sunday school this morning about the cultural ethnic identity of the Jews as a people. And you've heard people say this before. I know that you have probably that 
that if, if you want to see one of God's greatest miracles, just look at the Jew. Because there has never been a people group who has been preserved in the way that the Jews have. I gave them this example. You know, if I was to talk to you about my heritage, I'm Scotch, Irish, Welsh, German, uh, and probably some Cherokee Indian. You know, everybody in East Tennessee's got like, you know, 164th Cherokee Indian in them. And, uh, but I don't consider myself those things. I consider myself an American, Tennessean. You know, I, I, that's what I consider myself. And it hasn't taken many generations to wipe away those cultural ethnic identities, but the Jew is not this way. Uh, they Listen, from A.D. 70 down until 1948, there was not a proper Jewish nation in the sense of, of borders and a government. It did not exist. And yet, the Jews had enough cultural ethnic identity that Hitler was able to single them out for persecution and for assault. Wherever they went in the world, they may have been a Polish Jew or a, or a German Jew or a Russian Jew or, or a British Jew or an African Jew, but they were a Jew just the same. What a miraculous thing. No other people group could keep from being swallowed up the way that the Jews have. And God had made this prophecy that until the Messiah had come, until the first advent of the Lord, that they would retain their identity as a nation. And even in exile, they were considered a nation. They may have been a nation of subjects, but they were a nation just the same. The health of the nation is preserved, but the hope of the nation is promised. It says this, that the lawgiver would not depart. And by the way, some have interpreted that to be the idea of a king would, would retain upon the throne all throughout that time. And I, I don't necessarily uh, agree that there would always be a king upon the thrones. During their exile, there was no king, no uh, king from the tribe of Judah. But what it's saying is this, that God would provide one. And of course, He did, even in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a, a king. Herod was upon the throne. Uh, but of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was the proper king. But... The word Shiloh is pointed to as being the great hope of the Jewish nation. It's interesting that this hope is personified in the way that it is. Shiloh uh, is a term, it literally means peace. You'll hear a very similar word spoken by Orthodox Jews today. When they greet one another, they'll say, Shalom. And that's their way of saying, peace be upon you. In fact, that was the common uh, greeting even in the Pauline epistles. Paul uh, would usually say, grace and peace. And he was saying grace to the Gentiles. He was saying peace to the Jews because that was how they spoke to one another. Even to this day, many of them speak. This is a variation of that word. And basically what Jacob is saying is that Judah will prevail above his brethren. He'll continue as a nation until the person of prince or person of peace comes into existence and is revealed. We know that this happened after Christ uh, came and ministered to the Jews and walked this earth. Do you know that even they acknowledged after that that their authority had left them? You remember whenever they, were, uh, uh, they had appealed unto Herod and they had appealed unto Pilate, and Pilate said, this is a spiritual matter, this is a religious matter. Go and judge him according to your own law. And they said, well, it's not lawful for us to put a man to death. They acknowledged that they had had an authority, but that authority had departed from them. And in that moment, they acknowledged that they had accepted Caesar's authority in their life instead of their sovereign, independent authority as a nation. Why? Because Shiloh had come. The Prince of Peace had come. The Person of Peace had come. This is an important distinction. Here's why. It's because for the Jews, they always imagined the Messiah to be the great bringer of peace. 
And it carries back all the way to this prophecy in particular. One of the reasons they rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord is because they thought that they were going to have a Messiah that would break the, the yoke of Roman bondage a, a, away from them. They couldn't fathom, couldn't understand that He wasn't there just to deliver them from the Romans. He was there to deliver them from sin and death and hell. And they could not fathom that, that this peace could be vested in this person. There's an interesting phrase that's used in the book of Micah, and I want to read it to you very quickly before we move on. In Micah chapter 5, now you'll remember this prophecy as we read it, but there's a portion that you probably never noticed. It says this, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been uh, from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Now listen to this. And this man shall be the peace. Isn't that an interesting phrase? that the peace and health of that nation be vested not merely in a political movement, not in their army, not in their military, not in their economy, but it would be vested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's still the truth today. Uh, I, I would challenge anyone to try to tell me that there's peace in Israel right now. You turn on the TV and they still don't have peace in Israel. I mean, you and I, we sit here and, and the worst thing you're afraid of is me preaching till 7.30. <laughs> Wherever they sit tonight, they're waiting for a rocket to crest the hill where they sit. They're waiting for somebody. Listen, you can't even walk down the street corner in Jerusalem right now without somebody having to live in fear of somebody coming up and stabbing you on the street corner. You can see it all the time. If you watch the news, you'll see uh, almost every day there's somebody, the Palestinians have taken to stabbing people on, on the street. I'm talking about women and old men, I'm, uh, people that you wouldn't expect to be an attacker or an aggressor. They live in constant fear. They live uh, in constant attack mode all the time. Their peace is still not prevailing there. But there'll come a day their peace will prevail there. When the Prince of Peace sits upon a throne in Jerusalem, then peace will be there. I don't have the time to go into it, but you can look sometime uh, in the book of Isaiah in particular at the Millennial Kingdom promises that there's going to come a day when the uh, lamb will lay down with the lion. There will come a day when the, uh, the little child will play upon the top of a snake hole. We won't have to live in fear again. There will uh, come a day when even in the midst of the desert a rose will bloom and there will be plenty and, and prominence and prosperity everywhere that you turn, everywhere that you go. When is that going to happen? It will happen when the, the peace of Jerusalem sits upon the throne. This man shall be the peace. They rejected the peace, and they've never had peace since then. From the moment they rejected him, they've never known a moment of peace as a nation. They lived with political and cultural turmoil from the rejection of Christ down to the diaspora when they sacked Jerusalem. And from 70 A.D. until you and I sit here tonight in January of 2016, they have never as a nation known peace. They were born, uh, we might say born again as a nation. You know what I mean? They were reborn as a nation in the midst of warfare and battle. Uh, you study the history of the nation of Israel from the 1920s until now, and there's constant warfare and, and constant strife. They've never known peace because they rejected Him who is the peace. But one day they'll accept Him when that time comes. 
there'll be peace. I want you to notice not only is the hope of the nation personified, but the healing of the nation is promised in the next phrase. It says this in verse number 10, And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, this probably looks a little further beyond just the Jewish nation and probably looks to all people groups in all nations. But in a particular way, it does apply to the Jews. Uh, to this day, the Jewish nation has not been regathered. Uh, you, you look and the vast majority of Jews do not reside within Israel. Let me tell you something. All the Jews in the world, if they went home right now, they, they wouldn't have a place to sit down. They couldn't with the portion of land that they're allowed to occupy just, I mean, right now, just a little strip of land. You understand that at the height of their power, I'm talking about under Solomon's united kingdom, they only ever owned about a tenth of the land that God promised them. That whole corner of the world is under a promised title deed from God Almighty. But there'll come a day when the king sits upon the throne that that title deed, it'll be observed. And when that day comes, the gathering of the Jews will take place. It won't happen before then. It won't happen before then, but when he sits upon the throne, the Jewish people are going to be gathered back there in their entirety. Well, we see his visitation is mentioned, but I want you to notice one final thing, and I'll, I'll hush. His ministration is spoken of in verse number 11 and 12. Now, let me say that there are very distinct millennial connotations to these verses. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that the statements are statements of plenty. But here's the problem with that understanding of this verse, that in the chronology of the dispensational prophecy, it doesn't fit. You see, we're not in the millennium yet. We're in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I might give you a little different understanding of it than most people would. Look at verse number 11. We see his targeted audience is spoken of. It says, binding his foal. It's interesting that it speaks of a foal and of an ass, because both of those are beasts of burden and servitude. And it denotes the fact that the cry, the Son of Man would not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. And it says, binding his foal under the vine, and his ass's colt under the choice vine. Now, if you wonder who that vine is, go over to Isaiah chapter number 5, and you'll find that God planted a vine in a vineyard, and that is the nation of Israel. The Bible says that this promised one, Shiloh, the chief ruler, the prince that, that, that was to come, the Messiah, the prince, that he would bind his beast of burden, bind his servitude to this choice vine. You know that Christ even himself made this statement in Matthew chapter 15, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The first and primary ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was to the Jewish nation. Now, we're not real familiar with that. You know why? Because we're Gentiles and we think everything's for us. But you understand that when Christ came into this world, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came to the Jewish Nation, you understand that his entire earthly ministry, his entire life, other than the, the short time when he was young and, and they were in exile in Egypt, other than that, his entire life was spent within the borders of the nation of Israel. And he was ministering and speaking unto those people. This is indicative of his targeted audience of his earthly ministry. Now, after the Jews rejected the gospel, it went unto the ends of the earth. And it was to the Jew first, it was also to the Greek. I wouldn't be sitting here if it hadn't also been to the Greek. I'm glad it was to the Greek and to the Gentile. I'm glad for that. But we need to never forget that it was to the Jew first. Uh, I've said this before, but I'll share it with you again. When you consider the duality of nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we mean by that is this, that He was 100% God and 100% man. 
as 100% God, as the Son of God, He died for the sins of the entire world. But Israel had national sins where they had broken a national covenant. And that covenant had been with God, and those national sins had to be atoned for. And so as the Son of God, He died for the entire world. But as the Son of Man, and as the servant of God, but also as, as a Jewish man, He died for the sins of that nation. You remember when the angel prophesied and gave the name, and said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. In other words, it spoke about His distinct and particular ministry to the Jewish nation. We have His targeted audience spoken of. We have His tragic and terrible appearance spoken of. How did He do that? How did He minister to the Jewish nation? Well, He ministered first uh, by doing miracles in their presence. But ultimately, the greatest way that He ministered for them was by dying in their place. Listen to how He's described at the end of verse number 11. It says, He washed His garments in wine and His clothes in the blood of grapes. We know that this is not speaking about fermented wine because the phrase that's used. There are times when wine in the Bible does speak of fermented wine. It talks about wine as a mocker and strong drink is raging. But we know this is not because it's denoted as the blood of the grape. In other words, that which has freshly come from the crushed and pressed grape. But I think the figurative nature of this is what we need to understand. Just picture it with me. Picture a man whose garments look as if they've been washed in wine. Picture with me a man that looks as though he's been bathed in the blood of grapes. And there you'll see the beaten and bloody and bruised body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand the millennial connotations of these verses. I understand that there is a sense in which they apply uh, to the prosperity that Judah will enjoy during the millennial reign. But I think in as much as it applies to his earthly ministry, when I see him there hanging upon the cross of Calvary, when I see him covered in blood and his body broken, when I consider the fact that next Sunday night when we sit down and we drink that little grape juice, we're doing it, and what are we to think of? We're to think of the shed blood. When we eat of the cracker, we're to think of the broken body. It can't help but speak to me of His sacrifice in your place and mine. His terrible appearance is pointed to. We really can't fathom it. I'm just telling you, we really can't fathom it. Uh, you know, I, when, when you think about it, I, I was looking through the other day, looking through one of the, the programs and saw where they had the, the Passion of the Christ. Boy, that was a big deal for about three minutes, wasn't it? And uh, now it's some new movie, and ne- next week it'll be a new movie, and there's always something. But you remember when the Passion of the Christ came out? People talked about, oh, how, you know, how spiritual it was and everything. Uh, you, let me tell you something. You ought to just watch that movie with your Bible open sometime. And you'd see all the problems with it. You know, and people say, well, it's the closest that's been made. Well, laid against what? Jesus Christ Superstar? I'd hope they'd get closer than that. You know? It, that, that ain't nothing but the gore show according to Mel is what that is. But even, listen, even with all of Hollywood's makeup, even with all their special effects, even with the twisted, corrupted, and polluted mind of an unregenerate man writing, even with all those things, they couldn't even broach the brutality of what Calvary really was. You know how God describes it to us? In the book of Isaiah, it says that His visage was marred. You know, you know what that, that... It literally means He did not look human anymore. You know what God says when, when we try to imagine it? He says, don't even bother, because you'd never be able to. There's nothing that you could do to try to imagine, because He didn't even look human anymore. I won't go into the detail. I've done it 
scores of times. But the brutality that he suffered in a physical sense is so far beyond what we really think. I mean, it wasn't just a few nails uh, nailed into his, his wrists. It wasn't just a couple nails nailed into his feet. I mean, they literally beat him and cleaved the flesh from his bone. The things that they did, had he not been who he was, he would have never made it to the cross. Had he not been who he was, he would have never made it to the cross. But what was the result of it? Look for the next phrase, and I'm, I'm done. We see his targeted audience. We see his terrible appearance. But finally, a word is said about his triumphant achievement. It says in verse number 12, His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Now, most people, when they read that, they think the idea of bloodshot. But there again, that only makes sense if uh, we're talking about fermented wine. We've already noted that we're not. But even beyond that, never is uh, bloodshot eyes looked upon as a positive thing in Scripture. Read the book of Proverbs and you'll see that it's rebuked and it's, it's spoken down about. What that's speaking about is the health that uh, would be present. You could even see in their eyes, those that were wealthy enough that they could drink grape juice as opposed to just water, and those that had milk and sustenance and had a health about them, there was a darkness to their eyes. There was a health and a light to their eyes. And it describes this, that despite that terrible appearance, that it would redound unto His glory and unto His health and unto His well-being. When it says that His teeth are white with milk, it's saying that... And even this day, I mean, hey, you know, how many of you, your doctors, you ladies in particular, your doctors said you better drink lots of milk so that it's good for your bones. You ever heard that before? Well, you know, I mean, that's what teeth is. Am I right? I'm not a smart man, okay? I mean, that's what teeth are. And so in that part of the world, when, of course, dental hygiene was basically non-existent, drinking milk would help strengthen your teeth and your bones. What it's saying is this, that he'd be prosperous, he'd be healthy, he'd be all the better for what he had experienced. Now, hasn't that been been true? Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me, uh, the devil may have thought he had the victory on Calvary, but he didn't have the victory on Calvary. Uh, The book of Isaiah describes it. In fact, I'll turn there and read just a little bit of it for you in Isaiah chapter number 52 and 53. I won't read all of it, but... You know, you imagine that, that hell must have really rejoiced in that moment. They must have really thought that they had him beat. As, as he hung there bloodied upon the cross of Calvary, they must have really thought, boy, we've, we've finally accomplished it. We've finally done what we had hoped to do. But listen to how the Bible describes uh, the result. It says in verse number 11 of Isaiah 53, or verse number 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Let me tell you something. When you look at Calvary... Uh, you ought not see uh, the, a pitiful character. You ought to see a conqueror there upon the cross of Calvary. Uh, it may have looked pretty rough there as he hung upon the cross, but I guarantee you on the resurrection morning it didn't look rough. The Bible describes our Lord, says that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. As He looked through the annals of human history, He could see all those that would place their faith in Him and thereby know His Father. And through that, He joyed. <laughs> He endured the cross, despising the shame. For what? For the joy that was set before Him. 
We see the health. We see the triumph. We see the achievement. The cross may look like a failure to humanity, but to the new man, to the spiritual man, we see it as the great and grand victory of Him that overcame death that you and I might know what eternal life is.